what companies should be doing if they really want to show leadership is they should be showing structural change. And rather than just putting out, you know, a press release or we funded this, say, you know, our goal over the next five years is to go from 20% women to 50% women, right? And this is how we're going to do this. So 10 years or whatever it is. Welcome to Insert Human. This is a show that is not for everyone. It's for seekers, people like you, hopefully, who are searching for solutions to your problems, the world's problems, and everything in between. The conversations to come are going to show you how finding the truth of our humanity is the magic key to solving pretty much anything. Between my monologues, my dialogues with brilliant guests, and your good questions, you're going to learn how to insert human into everything, and in doing so, realize a better life and one day a better world. To the audience, I am with a, a dear friend who I've, I haven't really, probably, I don't know, how many hours have we spent together total in our life? Probably like 20, maybe. Yeah, but from the probably. moment we met, I think there was a, an affinity, an understanding, a connection, a meaning, a love, an appreciation, a respect. And we just really got along quite famously. And it all began in Singapore last fall when I was there speaking at a conference, actually a couple conferences, one of which uh, was put on by Kay's employer, the uh, Saxo Bank. And yeah, we just we just hit it off. And since then, we have had a WhatsApp relationship going back and forth, talking every now and then about all matters, matters of business, matters of, of world, matters of, you know, what it means to be human. So you are all um, blessed to have a, have a shot at listening to what this guy says. I should have said his last name, Ben Peterson. And your, your title, I believe, is a macro strategist. Is that, is that correct? That's correct. That's correct. Yeah. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> I think I'm still trying to figure it out every day. So it's global macro strategist, which basically says that you look at the world from a, a top-down kind of perspective, as opposed to, let's say, bottom-up, let's say, traditional kind of equity, you know, kind of fundamental approach, which is what I actually used to do in a, in a former life as, as a banker. So you're basically interested in, in the big picture and the big trends or the meta trends, as I like to think about them. So whether it's uh, monetary policy, fiscal policy, geopolitics, and then basically trying to decipher you know, what are the tailwinds and headwinds that kind of push the world, right? Whether the block is the Eurozone, the US, China, you know, developed markets versus emerging markets, and then how that kind of cascades across, you know, the traditional kind of asset classes, be it equities, bonds, commodities, or currencies. So a, a macro strategist or a macro strategy overall is basically sector asset class agnostic, you know? All you want to do is walk downhill and avoid walking uphill. That's all it is at the end of the day. And it's all pointed towards investment strategy, right? Like how to make... Generally speaking, like, you know, traditionally that's, that's, that's the way. But as you know, I am as unconventional as they come. So I just try and adopt that kind of philosophy in all of my kind of thinking as well, right? So how I live kind of my life and, and the different kind of choices I make, you know, versus inside, you know, do I want to jump on this thing that maybe, you know, is only going to carry me for a few days, maybe a few weeks, or do I want to maybe focus on this to carry me for a few months or a few years? Right, right, right. right. So as I mentioned, Kay and I have a back and forth WhatsApp dialogue going, and several weeks back, he 
left me a voice recording of probably a 30-minute commentary on <laughs> what's going on in the United States, specifically around racial inequality, the protests, and how, you know, if he if he were in charge of country, what would you call it, country 1.0, that, that if, you, if you could yeah. let go of the legacy sort of thinking systems, policies, blah, 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 sort of start from scratch, what he might do to affect a country or nation, maybe even a world of, of true equality, where you know there is no consideration of color or gender or ability or ethnicity or geography or anything. And and I thought I thought his commentary, which I just listened to, was really apt and refreshing in its clarity, given how complicated the picture actually is. And so I, I Okay, I'd, I'd just love for you to talk a, a little bit about, you know, you're now that you're now in, you're now in charge of country 1.0. You know, how how do you approach this? How do you get to a, a more equal world mechanistically, or from a policy standpoint, or from a philosophy standpoint? So I just love how we, you know, we just tackle all the easy topics. You know, <laughs> so we're going to do like, climate change next. Oh, great. Great. I call it climate crisis, but, you know, we could also delve into that afterwards. But so as in all things, you know, context is key, right? And maybe for the benefit of your esteemed audience, no doubt, you know, my background is by ethnicity and blood, half black, half white. I am very much an emerging market child born and raised in Kenya, did all my higher education in Europe and you know I've kind of worked everywhere from Denmark to Holland to you know the UK London to Hong Kong and now very uh, blessed lucky and privileged to be to be in Singapore and you know have also seen LATAM I've obviously also seen Africa and obviously now kind of Asia and what was driving me insane around, you know, the social instability that we continue to see in the U.S. that, funnily enough, I was also talking about early on this year, was just a lot of the headlines and the rhetoric. It was just, it's just a lot of finger pointing, right? There's no real systematic, uh, you know, attempt that I have seen that really kind of resonated with trying to put a framework on, you know, really highlighting the structural kind of issues around it. And, you know, how can you have a society where, you know, a person in a place of authority, you know, puts their knee on somebody for eight minutes and 46 seconds, right? And uh, Dave Chappelle has a really great thing on this, you know, the amount of things you can do in that time. And, um, you know, I was late to our uh, start this morning. I had to do a, a mile where I pushed at everything and I did it in, in six Six minutes, 46, which is pretty good for me for That's the morning. Yeah. You know, everyone in the morning is, is, is by, by no means as fast as they are later on in the day. Plus and it's 120% humidity where you are. So, yeah, yeah, you know. something like that as well. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And, and you know, and it, it's kind of crazy. And, it's, and I think it's even <laughs> more crazy the fact that no one was really doing anything about it. But, you know, all, all of that aside, and by the way, this is a huge thing that I think is been only possible with COVID. The fact that everyone was at home, the fact that everyone was watching that, and also the fact that everyone has a lot of pent-up frustration. I think if this happened in another universe that didn't have COVID-19, you know, George Floyd wouldn't even have made the second page. It would have just been another incident, right? 
Yeah, it's I mean, happened. you know, like, that was the right? trigger, right? That, right. That, 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 that was kind of the trigger in the whole thing, right? So to speak. It's, it's not like there was never any kind of issues here. But overall, it was just, just context of just the frustration. Just a lot of finger pointing. And also a lot of the classic window dressing that you get from corporates, from celebrities. And I was like, okay, let me, let me stop reading this stuff. Let me stop complaining and say, okay, how would I kind of go about, for lack of a better word, you know, solve this or at least try and make the situation better. And I think it's just the framework of, you know, let's forget that current system as it stands and let's just think of a system from scratch, you know? So, you know, we, we get to Mars with Elon and, you know, country 1.0, how do you have a country that is equitable in going back to, as you said, that kind of transcends the biases that come with ethnicity, gender, age, profession, and, you know, a lot of the embedded DNA issues that come with, with being a human being, right? And, you know, we're not that much evolved from animals. You know, I always say we're, we're, we're four meals away from civilization. So, you know, how do you tackle these things? And so I thought, you know, look at country kind of 1.0, then go back and look at kind of the current state and now say, okay, what can you maybe do to bridge the whole thing? So that was the original idea. And I think when you kind of go back to country 1.0, and this goes back to, you know, a point that I was making before the, the segment here kicked off, and it was something that you and I discussed when you were in Singapore a while back. You know, it seems like a lifetime away, but, you know, it was, it was, it was not even a year ago. But that was me asking you, you know, I was like, Chris, like, you know, all of the speaking that you do, all of the innovation that you do, all of the leaders around the globe that you speak to and the companies that you see, you know, what are kind of the underlying kind of issues that, you know, what is the central kind of cause that keeps coming back? And, you know, you just had this point that as a a species, you know, once you get past 140 people, we're just not set up to deal with the complexities that come from, you know, having more than that, right? And, and for those people that don't know, you know, this is kind of scientifically been kind of proven that that was kind of the ideal size of the tribe was 140. And the idea is because at 140, you can, you have skin in the game and you can police and measure that skin in the game. So, you know, if Billy or Barbara or whoever is not pulling their weight Every time, uh, you know, people come home from hunting or, or gathering, they basically get shunned by the tribe or they get kind of exiled. So there's a policing mechanism, right? And once you get past that, then that policing and accountability mechanism starts to kind of go out kind of the door, right? So, you know, going back to kind of country 1.0, you have to think about that. You need to build up a system where everyone has skin in the game in one form or another. And then there's also a transparency and there's also an accountability as well that is kind of built in over that. And, you know, that's talking about everything from, you know, the private side to the corporates to the government side. And of course, kind of the quasi, you know, parts that, you know, break across those three different kind of entities. And I think that is that is the basis when you kind of look at how any team or company and even kind of country, right? And I think this is something that Singapore has been very, very good. And a lot of people kind of miss when they all talk about kind of the Singapore model. You know, 
you end up basically rewarding what you incentivize for, right? And before this, you know, you also kind of had the nice adage of, uh, you know, we were talking about the big short. And, you know, it all just stems from the people who originally, you know, created these products. I mean, they were just thinking about their year-end bonus, right? And I'm sure their families, no doubt, and the pressures that kind of come from that. But in no way were they thinking that you would be getting, you know, immigrants, people who can barely speak English, let alone write, owning four condos that they had, you know, no, no business kind of owning, right? And, you know, again, why? Lack of skin in the game right? There'd be somewhere else. Same thing at kind of Enron, right? Same thing in kind of, kind of from a policymaker's perspective. You know, you look at Fed chairs, central governors. I mean, what's, gonna, what's the worst that can happen? You know, they'll go, they'll leave their job, then they'll give 50000 to $100,000 kind of talks and write a book probably, right? So I think just a lot, of, a lot of the points in governance has to come back where there is skin in the game, there is kind of accountability, and there's a lot more kind of transparency. Now, you can't take the human out, right, element. And, and, and you know, and it's a great thing actually here on, on insert human, which as you said, and I'm paraphrasing, correct me if I'm wrong, the overall objective here is to bring humanity back into everything that we're doing, right? And I believe you call that as, you know, the truth of the people involved. And, you know, I'm sure that is a function of empathy. That is also a function of exactly kind of what we're talking here, you know, skin in the game. So you don't have someone who's you know, worth $200 billion is a phenomenal entrepreneur, yet an employee on his factory floor is on, you know, food stamps or government aid or whatever, right? And, but I, I do really feel that, you know, a lot of our DNA is part of the problem, right? You know, because I think, you know, there's this element of ego and there's this element of, of, of kind of tribalism that, you know, it, it's easy to talk about, like, you know, we can rise above that. I'm not trying to say that, you know, we can't individually, but, you know, I see it, right? You can't expect people to be pledged to the overall community before their immediate family and then their friends, right? Let alone, you know, the, the, the country and kind of the government. And I think the element that potentially helps to eliminate and mitigate that is AI. It has to come from tech, right? And it's not to say that we outsource anything. It is. It is ironic. <laughs> it's a paradox. And a lot of people would be absolutely terrified with even the kind of the mention of that. But, but just hear me out here for a sec. You know, in, in finance, amongst many different strategies out there, there's something that's called, uh, you know, systematic strategy, which is basically driven by algorithms and coding. And the whole idea is, and the pitch is, that that takes out the, the human emotions out of the decision making. And you have something that's called kind of the black box, which basically, you know, you and I come up with a code, we back test it, we test it through different kind of regimes. And, you know, we put some risk management into it and so on and so forth. We've got racing capital. We have a hundred bucks and we basically turn it on. Right. And this black box tells us what to sell, what to buy, when to do it and, and what the sizing in and so on and so forth. Right. That's all we do. So our heavy lifting really goes back into maintaining the model, uh, the data that's kind of gone in through it, the changes in regime and so on. But you also have something else that's called the gray box. And that is kind of this you know, combination of human and machine, right? Where it basically gives you the recommendation of, of, of what should be done. And then you, as, as the human, end up kind of making the decision. And I think it's, it's something a lot more kind of like that. 
because you know you know let's say for argument's sake that you have a part of a big metro- metropolitan city so a borough so to speak and this is a city that is full of you know people whose skin color is all the hues of the rainbow so you know green orange pink blue etc and this hue you know they all predominantly you know purple people right and then you have a set of green folks who managed to get into these positions of let's say power so you know whatever the equivalence is of a city kind of councilor there and so on and so forth right now you cannot expect that any future changes in regards to rules and regulation is going to be skewed in an equitable kind of way it's just it's just kind of the way it is and you see this in a lot of places in new york where you know it's traditionally been italian or it's traditionally been jewish and so on and so forth right and how does that happen and again it's just because people have a bias towards their own rightfully or wrongly right and this is i think the parts where having an element of ai taken over that decision making on optimization is huge it takes out that human potential kind of ego and biasness not to mention to also an earlier point that you and I have talked about it can handle the complexity of second third fourth order derivative thinking you know the average human being you know does not think past first let alone kind of second order right it's all about oh i'm going to have this fast food right now because it tastes so good right let alone you know thinking about well what's the effect of if i'm having you know two donuts every day for 3 months right down the line right and I, and i think that element is just needed and it's coming chris this is not a this is not like hypothetical theoretical right. it's never right, going right. to happen it's coming and the first whether it's going to be company county state country that really kind of embraces this bring in ai in a way that kind of enhances and optimizes as well as outsources let's say a lot of the the lower factor decisions is is just going to have such a big and huge kind of competitive edge now obviously the ai the algorithms the data that gets fed into it that has to obviously be done in a robust way because we also know you know silicon valley being predominantly caucasian predominantly male right don't be surprised if um a lot of uh, the ai coming out of there is skewed towards that kind of demographic and like ai right? with bias is that what you're telling me <laughs> <laughs> i know i know who you know imagine that right uh, i mean this this was this was blatantly happening with i think a lot of the voice and facial kind of technology right where if you had like a, a mark zuckerberg you know the recognition was 99% and as soon as you put in a woman or someone of, of a different skew of color just you know was was not quite up to scratch right right right, right. so i mean you obviously have to you know make sure that that is also kind of robust otherwise you just end up with a bias being included in kind of the tech as a whole right so i i i think you know that kind of goes back to the whole package of country kind of 1.0 so you know we need tech we need ai we need skin in the game and we need a much more kind of stakeholder quality approach rather than i think what has been very much a, a capital equity bondholder growth at all costs approach which is kind of the business model of the world right which you know works and has worked for as long as things were kind of growing and you know resources seemed pretty 
kind of infinite. But I think we're now starting to really see the consequences of all this in, in, in today's kind of world. And, you know, the social unrest, which, you know, as we're talking about, is, is very much prominent in kind of the U.S. I mean, you know, it's, it's across the world, right? It's not just a problem that's in the U.S. It's funny, just to interject there, as you know, I'm writing a book with the title Technology is Dead, which is fundamentally about how, why most innovation fails in the short term, term, and even the stuff that works in the long term tends to carry with it some not so pleasant, un- unintended uh, consequences. And one of the sort of, I guess, early observations is man's inability to really understand man and how that impacts you know, everything from innovations to relationships to, you know, long-term, short-term, you know, whatever. So as you, as you think about 1.0 and you think, one of the questions I have for you is around the role of leadership and the role of leadership vis-a-vis empathy. You know, we talked earlier about empathy and, and the, the criticality of empathy and understanding other people. Like where's leadership sort of fit in the 1.0 model, if you will? How do you think about that? And, and not just at a, at a country level, but at a company level, at a family level. Another thing I think a lot about is the role of parents in their, in their job as developers of their children as citizens, you know, and so they're leading there too. I don't know. That's like a rambling, rambling observation, but. No, totally, totally. But I mean, but it's, it's pivotal, right? Because you know, people think of leaders and they think, oh, it's got to be like, you know, a CEO or a president or whatever, but it's not, right? I think, you know, in all the different roles and hats that we wear, you know, at one point or another, you are a leader, a worker, a mentor, a mentee, right? And, you know, you can very much even have that same role with the same kind of person. But, you know, on, on overall thoughts on empathy and leadership, you know, interestingly enough, there was a book that I didn't really want to read. I thought it was going to be a little bit, how should we say it, almost like a vanity affair, some flag waving that you kind of tend to see. And it's, uh, you know, The Trillion Dollar Coach. And funnily enough, Wait, what, what's uh, it called? The Trillion Dollar Coach. So it's, it's on a guy that was called Bill Campbell, who apparently was kind of uh, the de facto, you know, number two guy in the sense of the coaching and the the mentorship that he had alongside a lot of the elite in Silicon Valley. So, you know, you name the person, you know, Bill was coaching them, whether it was Steve Jobs, whether it was the guys at, at Google, you know, Eric, whether it was, I mean, everyone kind of seems to know him. And, you know, you read the book and basically this guy kind of walks on water and only smells of roses. But it doesn't mean that there's not something to kind of take away from. But one part that I really liked on leadership that I think is kind of the best definition was, at least it really resonated with me, was, you know, leadership, it's easier to tell you what leadership is not. And it's not a title, right? A manager is a title, but leadership is earned. And how do you earn something you earn something by showing by doing not by talking right and i think that very much goes back into kind of the classic kind of parenting and on our side we have a young household uh, we have 
astonishing daughter who you know has turned two but is going on eight and we're just super super cognizant of what we do around her because we know she's going to emulate rightly or wrongly what we what we do and you know going back to your point on you know parents as as developers and i just love what you said you know towards being global citizens right and I, I remember this adage really well from, you know, a, a, a kind of a mentor friend I have very similar to the relationship that you and I have. He's very much skewed on on the investing and trading side. In fact, he's probably the, hands down the best uh, trader I've ever come across. But I was catching up with him and he's got two kids. And one of the kids is just off the charts bright, you know, like we're talking genius level and has had to kind of go to, you know, special schooling and, you know, was doing kind of college courses at 13 and so on and so forth. And we're kind of going through it. And, and you know, and I think a lot of parents have seen this where you catch up and you ask about kids and it's almost like this competition. They're doing this and they're doing that and so on and so forth. And, and you know, he was telling me how they were doing and the kids are very different. But he ended on the best thing, Chris. He goes, and he's just a good kid. And, you know, and you don't hear that, right? You, you know, he's... His whole point was the kid was empathetic, polite, you know, compassionate. And these are just the things that you don't hear most of the times when people talk about their kids, their spouses, <laughs> their bosses. It's always these kind of, you know, outcomes, flag wavings, events. And that's what it kind of comes down to. You know, what's the point of having, you know, the smartest kid in the room who's gone to all the Ivy League schools, you know, is working at a, the, the, the best kind of firm? And it's just a complete a-hole, right? It's just a complete net negative drain on kind of society. I mean, you've completely failed as a parent, right? In my viewpoint, right? I would rather burn all my assets and money than leave it to, to someone who's ended up that way or, or you know, give it away. It's probably the better thing to kind of do. It's funny, you know, this weekend we were, um, Kate and I were with uh, friends down in uh Rhode Island, Newport, Rhode Island. And one of them is eight months pregnant. She's due first week of September and first child. And she and I got her name, Charlotte. And she and I got into a conversation over dinner about one of my beliefs is the importance of intentionality and in parenting, which is exactly what you've been saying. You know, what is, what skills, sensibilities, beliefs, morals, ethics, values, do you want your child to walk out into the world with and, and having a conversation with your partner conversations, cause it'll probably evolve over time. Having a conversation with your, your parents, the child's grandparents, you know, getting all the, all the caretakers to understand the intention. And then, you know, the presumption is once the intention is established, your actions, explicit, implicit can contribute or not to those outcomes. And what's so interesting to me is how few parents, myself included, ever have those conversations. And it really comes back to country 1.0 in the sense that, you know, if we seek a different kind of country, then I think it's incumbent on each of us as individuals to play a leadership role in guiding, developing, encouraging those around us, including our children, to, to move to a place where they can contribute as global fair-minded citizens you know like you know that that expression it takes a village it really it really does 
And I guess my, my other point there is I think as, as much as I believe in the power of policy, it needs to be, it needs to be met with, with humanity, which needs to be con- connected to development, right? The evolution of the individual, ultimately, when you add all the individuals together, represents the evolution of the species. And so if we are not intentionally involving us and evolving the people we are bringing into this world, then, then it, de, de facto, the outcome cannot ever be the outcome that we want, right? Yeah, no, totally, totally, totally. I, I mean, I completely resonate, you know, with, with what you're saying. And, you know, I mean, do you think that also this is also a factor of, you know, generation, right? So, you know, for instance... There's a lot of pushback on the entitlement, quote unquote, of millennials versus, let's say, the boomers or the generations before. And, you know, we've all heard about, you know, the old school kind of father who, you know, could, would never say I love you, for instance. Right. Because it just was never said to him. Yeah. I mean, I think it is generational for sure. But I also think it's I'll, I'll be I'll be radical here and say I also think it's part abdication. So, you know, it's sort of like your point about legacy. Legacy systems don't tend to serve us well. No, they don't. They serve their incumbents. Yeah, we abdicate our responsibility to take them on, to, to imagine what if, you know, what if we went to Mars together? And, and, you know, what if we could let go? What if we could do this differently? And I think, I think that's, that's, in a way, the, the problem isn't the legacy. The problem is our approach to legacy, you know? And I was actually thinking today about myself and I'm, I'm, I'm proud of myself in the sense that I, I have changed a ton over the last 20 years, but I've even changed recently, specifically around the environment and what you call the climate crisis, which I totally agree with. So up until, I don't know, three years ago, I was environmentally aware and environmentally concerned, but not environmentally activist. So it was all, it was kind of lip service, you know, I was like, yeah, you know, we really should do better, you know, you know, and I'd pick up trash on the street every now and then, but I, I was in my behaviors. I wasn't, I wasn't shopping with a, with a, with an environmental sort of heart or head. I wasn't, I wasn't, I just wasn't behaving in my environmentally correctly. And for the, in the last, really last, as I said, two years, I've, I really, I've really, I've really changed. My point there is that, I believe that if we want to change the outcome of our society and the way of our society and what human progress really represents, a critical part of that strategy, I guess, is our commitment to changing us and or changing the people that we have influence on. That, you know, this is fundamentally a developmental journey of that we're trying to eliminate inequality. It begins with us. Yes, policies can have a have a, a major impact for sure. I know, you know, in, in the in the in the voicemail you or the voice recording you made for me, you talked, you brought up a, a lot of I think really would be helpful policies. And now I was going to say, but but and I think the central sort of tenet of it has to be has to be individual development. And and I'll and I'll I'll use as my uh, as my proof point. So my wife Kate runs, I think you know this, runs an organization called Now and There, Boston-based organization, nonprofit focused on public art, bringing 
more large scale temporary public art into the Boston communities. And we have, I'm on the board. I've been on the board since she started it five years ago. There's, I think, eight board members, uh, one person of color, a black, black woman. And when all the protests began, the Black Lives Matters thing really sort of got going. We had a board meeting to talk about, you know, how should the now and there organization respond to, to this? You know, what should we do? Should we write a policy statement? Should we revisit our hiring practices, whatever? And what was amazing about it was Charla's, who's the board member, she basically said, fuck that stuff. And she, there's a term here that I don't know if it's made its way to Singapore called virtue signaling. Have you heard this? Yeah, I've heard it. It's huge in social media. It's like, you know, keyboard warriors, right? So, you know, the idea is like, we're going to issue a statement that now and there is committed to Black Lives Matter, you know, and, and Charlotte was like, no. I mean, you, she was like, I guess you can do that, but just understand it won't do anything. And what her advice to the board was, and, re- and I really, really stuck with me is twofold. Listen, don't talk, listen. White people, listen. Stop talking, listen. And then the second is expose yourself to the other, whoever the other is. And in exposing yourself, begin to better understand yourself and your feelings and your, and, and see the biases in action, right? <laughs> like look in the mirror. And, and, and that's all a long-winded way of saying that I think the ability to have material impact on any part of our society that is broken, beginning with the, the screaming levels of inequality, racial and otherwise, that the way we the way we have to do that the starting point is inside us it's not an external thing it's an internal thing and that requires courage you know and i think that you know it, it, anyway i think there's this this combination like in all systems improvement there's a combination of mechanisms and humanisms that have to happen in sync like it's sort of your point about AI, like applying AI to the limitations to solve the bias problem, right? How you bring mechanisms and humanisms, I know humanisms isn't really the right word, but together to address this stuff, I don't know. So, uh, you know, I just have a few thoughts, you know, around, you know, a few different things that you kind of change. So again, in, in no specific order, but yeah, so I call it climate crisis. It's not climate change. And actually, if you go back and you, look into the wording climate change. This is actually something that has been put together as a strategy by the Republicans. It used to be, if you recall, global warming. And they ran studies and they found out that climate change sounded a lot less alarming than global warming, right? Perfect. My point here is, you know, words of power. I mean, they're literally magical, right? In regards to, you know, your earlier point on intent, direction, and, you know, what you're actually trying to, you know, convey, achieve. And, you know, let's be honest, a lot of that is deception, right? Or, you know, as you said, this virtue signaling, this, this window, you know, we got to look hip, woke, whatever it is for our employees, for our future employees, for <laughs> our clients. I mean, it's, it's, it's just, you know, it's painful to, to look at. 
it's so it's so insincere. It is. It really, really is, right? And I, I guess the one beautiful part that I'm seeing trenches of pockets of is, you know, consumers are slowly learning, and they don't fully appreciate this, but that their capital is basically like votes. You know, where they choose to spend their money or not spend their money is, you know, a reflection of what they kind of stand for, or more importantly, you know, what they want to see more of and less of in this kind of world, right? And and I think that's a powerful kind of thing. It, it could obviously be way, way better organized, way, way better kind of construed than it is now. But I think there's huge opportunity to really take out a lot of kind of the bottlenecks, right? And, you know, my favorite example here, you know, and we're going to emulate the NRA on this, is, you know, I was just shocked. You know, there's, there's a great podcast, I believe it's called The, the Undivided Attention. You know, they, they do a lot of work on tech and its influence and going back to your point on this unintended kind of consequences, right? But they had this great speaker on and he was talking about how when you look at the, the gun lobby and, and the NRA in the US, it, it's something like, you know, the, the actual members are only 4 million people, right? Now, this is in a country of 330 million people. And, you know, they are punching way, way, way above their weight in regards to influencing politicians, regulations. You know, it's such a decisive issue, right? But my whole point is they're organized, they're motivated, they're passionate, and look what they're achieving. And they're very clear on their intention. Exactly. And, and, you know, and, and they also get to, you know, drape the constitution around them, right? So they do also have that adage and that advantage. But my whole point is, like, just a little bit of coordination, just a little bit of organization. There's definitely the passion, I feel, for, for, for change and holding companies more accountable. But there's just very little organization and very little sustained organization. What companies should be doing, if they really want to show leadership, is they should be showing structural change. And rather than just putting out, you know, a press release or we funded this, say, you know, our goal over the next five years is to go from 20% women to 50% women, right? And this is how we're going to do this. So 10 years or whatever it is, right? We're going to put quotas. We're going to find them. We're going to hire them. And we're also going to build these programs that is going to increase, you know, women coming into these these fields. And obviously you can break that, not just from just a gender thing, but also to an ethnicity kind of aspect. I mean, this was also part of the reason why I was so keen on getting involved with SoGal, which is, you know, SoGal Ventures, millennial-led VC, where they just focus on female entrepreneurs, or at least one co-founder being a woman and also kind of minorities because basically 98% of venture capital goes to males, right? Which is astonishing because it's not like 98% of the population in the world is, is men. And if you actually look at all the studies of purchases and uh, decision spending, you know, the majority is still women. So it's just like, it's the most weird kind of skewed, you know, paradox, but What's really important about venture capital, and you'll appreciate this because this is kind of your sweet spot, you know, your time at kind of Harvard and, and innovation and tech, is VC sculpts where society is going, right? It's incubating the companies of the future. 
So, you know, if you're talking about things that hit way above, you know, their weight, it's venture capital. So this is, this, this is going to be where the real structural change is going to be for generations, right? So, you know, there's two facets. There's obviously facets of current and existing kind of companies. And then there's really like changing, who are we backing on the VC space? Because going back to your point in legacy, we only back in the Mark Zuckerberg lookalikes because, hey, guess what? That's all we've seen really succeed crazily. So monkey see, monkey do, right? Well, it's, I mean, I think it's a function of intention, back to intention. Like what is the intention of a venture firm? Is, is, it, is it purely financial? In which case, they're, they're going to go after Mark Zuckerberg lookalikes because they have a greater chance of becoming a unicorn and, you know, delivering a 50x whatever multiple. And another, another sort of related aside to that is in writing technology is dead, I began, I began with the question, what, is, what constitutes human progress? Which is an interesting question. And then I said, and what has been the driving force behind most innovation since the beginning of man, since the beginning of, you know, the, since the wheel and, and fire and the Gutenberg press? And what's really interesting is the intention of most innovation has not been explicitly the sort of collective and healthy progress of man or people. It's actually been simply speeding everything up. Yes, it's a really good, good, good observation. Absolutely. So like on the one hand, we say, well, look at how everything's progressed. But if you actually look at it through the lens of are the majority of people really better off, have more opportunity? Have we addressed inequality? Have we pulled bias out of the system? The answer is not really. I mean, even gender bias, you know, I mean, it's only been in the last 50 years <laughs> You know, that, that women sort of have, have stepped up into sort of, not in all countries, but at least in America, sort of mostly equal status. So back to the VC thing and back to the idea of if, if venture is the incubation of our future society, then more venture needs to take on societal responsibility as its intention because of the fear the fear, if it's purely a commercial intention, that yes, it will incubate companies of tomorrow who may ultimately not serve the masses well. Yeah, but I would also interject or add that, you know, targeting women and targeting minorities, targeting whatever you want to label it, disenfranchised the circles of silence within societies and countries is not necessarily commercially not profitable. If anything, I would even argue that it is potentially exceptionally profitable. You know, when you look out in any skyline in any country or city in the world, you know, you're looking at a world that is predominantly male stamped, you know, in design, in systems, in approach, you know, the classic, you know, fact that, you know, most, the most temperatures in buildings are actually too cold for women. Guess what? They're all designed by man, males, right? At the end of the day. And this is just a very, very simplistic kind of way. So, I mean, this huge opportunity is a huge skew for just saying, just shifting it, the dial a little bit to the kind of the other side. But I agree with you. There has to be an element, like I'm not going to trust and leave it to Silicon Valley to lead the charge here. You know, it's just not going to happen that way, right? 
you know, just simply, even if I think they want to and may have the best intent, right? Again, monkey see, monkey do, right? There's a reason you have to bring people who are older, younger, have a different perspective, right? Because they will see something that you will not see. And more importantly, they won't have the biases that you will have, whether you realize it or not. And I even think, you know, when you kind of go back and you look, some of, I think, the amazing things that can kind of come out of the COVID response and, you know, this huge amount of debt that we're seeing. But we could see some really game-changing structural programs if they're done right, where, in your know, institutions like the Fed and the Treasury can back social impact venture funds, right? Whose mandate is to have more representation of people who are not the majority. And, you know, also have this run by, guess what? People representing the area that they're supposed to impact, right? You don't have an association of purple people whose objective is to, you know, beneficially aid people who are green, right? You know, you need people that you're targeting to be part of the solution and part of kind of the framework, right? And, and again, there is no perfect solution, just, you know, even kind of going back to country 1.0, you know, there's always going to be collateral damage, slippage. Uh, if it was all super easy, it would all be kind of solved. But a, a big part of the complexity is, is kind of, you know, human beings. And, and, you know, just one other kind of point, and always in the esoteric kind of flow between topics that we, you and I always do, you know, going back to country 1.0 and going back to also this point where you said about individual development. And here, did you mean individual development as a whole across society? Or did you predominantly were talking about it from the perspective of the incumbents, the majority, the ones kind of in control? So I thought a lot about what's the measure of a society. And I had a, I did yeah. an interview with um, a guy named Richard Barrett. Have you ever heard of Richard Barrett? You know, the name rings a bell, but it's probably because you mentioned it to him before. <laughs> I have his book flying around here somewhere, but he's a very bright guy. I, I refer to him as a social scientist. I'm not sure that's even accurate, but he's a very, very bright guy. Studied, studied mankind, humankind for forever, and he has some very distinct views about how to measure the health of a nation. And it's, they're very, he and I were laughing on the call the other day because we were so, we're so similar or so aligned on a lot of fronts. And, you know, one of my beliefs is the measure of health of a, of a country is what percentage of its citizens have the latitude, feel the latitude and have the latitude to achieve their potential, which is not a majority proposition. It's a, well, it's a majority proposition that it's the, everybody, it's not relegated to the, the party or segment or, or, you know, race in power. It's, it's, does the entire populace have the potential, have the feeling of the potential to realize their themselves. And I, and that is about development, right? Like that, it's not about the ability to make a lots of money. It's about the ability to realize one's full capacity, which is a developmental proposition. So Yes. The, well, the answer is I meant everybody. Okay. No exclusion. No. And I, and, I, and I love that as also a holistic kind of visionary goal, something to aspire to. Right. And obviously though, going to exactly your point where you said there's actually probably only really a minority that are kind of doing this. Right. 
you have to create the ecosystem and the environment where people actually get this opportunity for development, right? And going back to country 1.0, the basic human rights need to be basically upgraded from, you know, just air, shelter, food, safety. And now we also need to add healthcare, for instance, right? Uh, we need to add also education, right? And we need to add income, right? This has to be just a package that at the very minimum people get. Now, the classic kind of approach has been, no, no, just give them jobs because when they have jobs, then they can get these things. No, that's not working. That is literally not working, right? Or if they have these things, you know, they just have a slice of, of what it is. You know, it's, it's not up to par. It's downtrodden. It doesn't work half the time. You know, no one can be thinking about development if uh, they can't keep their lights on or if there's gunshots outside their their their, their window or if, if they got to be scared to walk down kind of the street, right? And I know you know this or agree with me and and Richard and I were talking about this as well, is it's a very Mas, Maslow hierarchy picture, which is if the first three levels of need are not met, physiological safety and some sense of belonging, some sense of connection to others, there's no way that personal development can happen. There's no way that actualization of one's capacities can unfold because your, your entire energy and being is focused on how do I get those fundamental needs met? And I believe, I agree. I think our, our country 1.0 model has to, it has to involve universal healthcare. It has to involve equal education for all. You know, you know, in the United States, how biased our public education system is. I mean, if you're in a poor area, you're going to have a, you're going to have poor schooling. It's, it's almost de facto. So, you know, and, and yeah, so the, you know, and even belonging, I, th I think, I think we, ha we have a responsibility to support people with, with community mechanisms where nobody feels alone. I was just, I was just reading as part of the book, some research on loneliness, 61% of adults in America claim to be lonely. <laughs> I'm not surprised. In fact, I would have thought it would be higher, to be honest, because when was this survey taken, by the way? Do you have any idea? 2019. Okay. So not even during the COVID, <laughs> right? But yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, I think the U.S., like any place, has its own sometimes unique sets of challenges. And, and probably the, the biggest kind of thing that's always been very prominent in my mind anytime I come through the U.S., is the focus on materialism, right? Your bling blings, your cars, your houses, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, going back to your point on, on empathy, you know, it's a function of exposure, right? Insulation is negative correlated to empathy because, you know, it's not like the person with the Bentley in the cliffside villa doesn't want to try and help the rest of society. He's just not seeing that side of society or she's not seeing it, right? And, you know, I think this is kind of, uh, again, a function of exposure and going back to your point, make the effort to get out of your comfort zone to actually see how, uh, you know, other, other folks kind of live. But I feel really kind of strongly on this whole basic needs where I think there's almost no way 
we can't have a system where you're going to have universal basic income for a certain level, as well as access to healthcare and access to kind of education. Because otherwise, it's going to be like an emerging market where you're in a place like South Africa, which is, you know, unfortunately going down the drain. And that's my own personal view. That's not a firm view, of course. Everything here we discuss is my own personal view. And, you know, so, okay, so you are, you're in the upper elite, right? You're wealthy, et cetera, et cetera. But guess what? You're basically being chaperoned from castle to castle, right? You can't walk down the street, right? And it's like, okay, well, can we all go and live in Monaco? Probably not. And, and if you can, do you want to, right? You know, so, I, you know, I think, and, and, and actually this has been the best thing about COVID-19. It's, it's actually said like, whoa, okay, you know, what's the point of me being a billionaire, independently wealthy, whatever, when my doorman or driver can literally kill me from a virus, you know, without even intending to, or my kid can die, right? It's in my interest for everyone to have excellent access to healthcare. And we have to rethink the system of, you know, how is that going to get paid? Yeah. Although even that is interesting in the United States, the observation of, I'm sure you've seen the statistics that, I don't know, 40% of, I don't know, 50% of Republicans or something think that COVID is a lie. You know, and this, it was created by the Democrats to unseat their uh, fearless leader. Yeah, well, I, I think that's a whole that's a whole nother that's bottle whole other of worms podcast. to open. <laughs> yeah, once you kind of go into the you know the tribalism between the Democrats and the Republicans, and and you know that's also a problem in the U.S. You guys, for all intents and purposes, only have two parties, so it's a duopoly. And if you have a duopoly in any other kind of structure and business, guess what? They're not going to be competitive, right? The end user is not going to get the best of both worlds. And that's, that is a big part of the problem. You know, the long and short of it, you know, amongst other things, you know, even the whole kind of constitution needs to be enhanced, upgraded, however you want to kind of think about it. Looked at through a a modern day set of intentions, you know, carrying forward, I think some of the original intentions, because I think, I think there was, there was a lot of the right focus, but I think some of the focus is now out of focus. But I think, yeah, a re-examination of that document through a new set of attention, intentions that reflect, you know, the realities of the world, whatever, would be a really healthy thing. Yeah, I think a focus on spirit, right, rather than just necessarily reading word for word. You know, what was the spirit when this was written? Right. 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 I think is key. Yeah. But I need to let, I just realized we're like, uh, we're, we're over, over, way over time, which is not a surprise because I do love talking to you and um, we could do this probably all day long and just say, I just want to say thank you for your observations about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. <laughs> I love the idea of country 1.0 and, and, and I think your message is similar to mine, which is it can be done. It's, it's, not, it's not insurmountable to create a world of, of equal everything for everybody. And it's, it's partly a systems issue for sure, a mechanism issue, but it's also a human issue and that each of us has a role and maybe even, not maybe, and a responsibility to try to, try to move, move us towards that place. And, and I don't think, I'm not talking for America, I'm talking for the world. No, totally. I mean, this is this is holistic, and you know, if if it, if you're not experiencing it in your country, well, you know, more than likely, it's 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 just a question of time 
And, you know, when we say country 1.0, we obviously mean also company 1.0, family 1.0, team 1.0, you know, individual 1.0. I think that goes without saying. But, you know, Chris, I'm glad that you are doing a podcast finally after my (laughs) campaigning. Um, And, you know, I'm looking forward to the book when it eventually kind of comes out and, you know, hope to do this again at some point. We will do it again. And I love you tons. And thank you for the gift of you to me. It means a lot. Likewise, my man. Likewise. It's always a pleasure. And thanks for getting up so early. No problem. Next time I want to talk about your like daily rituals. That's my uh, agenda. Thanks, bub. Bye. Thanks for listening today. If your interest is peaked and you want more, visit my site, chriscolbert.com to subscribe to the show, listen to prior recordings and get direct access to my articles and the talks I've given around the world over the last couple of years. When you sign up, you'll also receive a free copy of the first chapter of my about to be published book, Technology is Dead. And again, if you want more, just visit chriscolbert.com. It would be great to have you with me on the ride.